you're listening to highlights of the Creative Processes conversation on Arnold Schwarzenegger, athlete, actor, American activist. Senior editor and writer at Tashin, Diane Hansen discusses this photographic homage. This photographic homage. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. 11 years ago, Benedict Tashin emailed me and said, meet me at our Beverly Hills store. We're going to have a meeting. So when I got there, we go up on the roof and we sit down and Arnold Schwarzenegger and his friend Rolf Muller walk in. Rolf's about six foot five. And of course, Arnold is Arnold. And Arnold sits down next to me and he's looking over at me sideways in his very powerful eyes. And he had just gotten out of the governor's office. And Benedict says, we are going to make a book on Arnold Schwarzenegger with Arnold Schwarzenegger and that I am going to be the editor. Well, it quickly became clear that Arnold and I are very similar. Neither Arnold or I have a traditional college education. We are both people who grew up in the country did not have the opportunities for education. We educated ourselves and clawed our way up through our careers, trying to prove ourselves and get respect for our abilities without those traditional backgrounds. Arnold has, and I would like to think that I have some charisma, but Arnold has charisma above and beyond anyone I have ever met in my life. And even before Tashin, I had met many famous people, accomplished people, but never anyone who radiated this power. And when you see him in the movies, he's famous for these very short one-liners that make it seem as if he is nonverbal, that he's not particularly intelligent. Intelligent. You don't get his humor. The first time I went to Arnold's house, I saw that this man is the greatest storyteller, the greatest entertainer ever. He is funny. He is witty. He is quick. He can tell a story like no one else and not just tell it. He would act it out. He was born on July 30th. 1947. And most of us today don't have any understanding of relationship to what Europe was like right after World War II. The winter of 1946-47 in Austria was the most brutal in decades. The people already had too little food. They were in an occupied country. The summer potato crops failed. As Arnold has said, his mother had to go from farm to farm to farm begging for food to be able to feed her children. His father, like all the men in the village, were defeated from the war. I mean, they were not just defeated by their side losing, but real realizing what their side had stood for, that they were the bad guys. And he saw them all physically, emotionally, intellectually defeated and taking it out on their wives and children, that he was beaten, his mother was beaten, all the neighbor kids were beaten, and they were beaten into a kind of placid defeat. And he alone would not accept that. He could not see that life for himself. And he was, as a child, searching for ways to get out of that. And bodybuilding became that when he learned about bodybuilding as a very poor boy. They lived, you know, on the top floor of a house. They had no plumbing. They all bathed once a week in the same tub in the kitchen. And his brother, and he had to bring the water in. His mother heated it, and they took baths one by one. Mother first, father second, older brother third, Arnold last in the tub of dirty water. And so he wanted out of that. And as a poor boy, he had nothing but his 
body to work with. That was it. There was not going to be any college. There was not going to be any of that. There was going to be some kind of menial job or he could use what he had, his body, to get him out of there. And he has said that. He has said that he had a hunger and he still has a hunger that drives him always not to abandon what he's already done, but to add on to what he's already done when he was 15 years old. And there was a Russian competitor who won, and he had never imagined there could be someone as strong as this man. And from that moment, that was his original goal, to be the strongest man in the world, not to have the most beautiful body. Number two, he saw the actor Reg Park in a magazine and saw he became a bodybuilder. He used that to get movie roles. And then he saw he had this beautiful home. He had beautiful wife. He had the son, the dog, everything that looked like the perfect life to Arnold. And so that became the second thing. He becomes the strongest man in the world. Then he gets into movies and then he gets to the United States. And pretty much that was it at that point. That was the goal. It wasn't until he got to the U.S. that he started telling people and told Bob that he wanted to be president someday. So he was already dreaming about a political career, dreaming about what is the very top that a person can reach, can achieve. He and Danny DeVito and director Ivan Reitman, who also wrote the film, were willing to work for free and just take a percentage of the profits. They were able to get the film made. And the studio thought, okay, it's going to be a very cheap film to make. No special effects, no stunt people. It's going to be very cheap and easy. These guys, they're going to do it for free. And everyone involved has made more money off that film than any other film. Arnold actually, for the high high prices that he got for his late Terminator films, he still has made more money off Twins because of taking a percentage. He is underappreciated. <laughs> I guess that's what it is. And as I started going through his archive, I saw that there are certain photographs that show him in his facial expressions like none other. And those photographs are always when he is interacting with children or interacting with animals. And all pretense drops away. His face just lights up. It is real. It is genuine. It is open. And that's something that I tried to include as much as possible, particularly in the small book that is more personal, to show that human, affectionate, warm side of Arnold. The things that he wanted to achieve, he didn't achieve because, of course, he was the lone Republican. So he had all the Democrats voting against him on everything. Arnold attempted to make universal health care in the state of California. I think a lot of people don't realize this, that, as he said, he had that in Austria. It only made sense to him that everyone should have health care, but he was blocked from that. The really important thing that he did here, however, had to do with climate change. He told me that he had always been interested in the environment. He grew up being very cautious about everything. You don't waste water, you don't waste power, all these things as a poor child. But he said he didn't really understand what pollution was doing until he became governor. And he got all the memos, he got all the information that is fed to every 
politician that everyone in office knows about and many, many choose to ignore. But for him, it really opened his eyes. And he said, we can't let this go on. So he initiated a greenhouse gas cap in California and people fought against it. Are you kidding? It has continued to this day. People have gotten behind him for it, that we will reduce emissions and we will have cleaner air in California and we will have cleaner water and we will have cleaner beaches. He blocked offshore drilling. And he said, well, because, yeah, when he first came here, there'd been an oil spill and he went on the beach and he got tar in his feet. No one should have to have tar on their feet when they go to the beach. And that was his real contribution that has now led to his activism for climate change and ending pollution all over the world. As he says, we don't have Republican air. We don't have Democrat water. We all breathe the same air. We all have the same water. It's happening to all of us and it's happening all over the world. And if we just continue to ignore it so that we can put some money in our pockets or we can get reelected, what are we leaving for the future? And, you know, his devotion to children and to helping children makes him look at it from a different perspective. He's not one of these heartless old politicians who's just like, well, as long as it doesn't happen while I'm alive, I'm going to get rich off of this. He is always thinking of the next generations. He is always thinking of what he is going to be able to hand down. What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I know it's a struggle, particularly in the U.S., for young people to get a higher education now. College has gotten very, very expensive. It's not getting cheaper. It is cutting out more. We are creating a another working class that cannot access education, and yet there aren't good jobs for these people anymore. If you cannot afford an education, go on YouTube. Go to the University of YouTube. Don't just look at, you know, cat videos on there. There is a world of information to be gained off of YouTube. If you look at some of the heads of tech companies, they are people who are college dropouts. They are people without an advanced education. We are going to be going back to the way it was when I was young, where if you did the work, if you had the knowledge, if you presented yourself well, you could still accomplish something. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.